Hey, it's great to be back at Grace Center in Franklin. We were doing the numbers, and I, we think the last time I was here was like in 2003. So I have a question. How many were here in 2003? I don't recognize any of you. I don't know. I don't know. I'm kidding. No, it's actually really great to be back. Jeff, Jeff came out to Bethel about two years ago to go to one of our events, and, and we were reminiscing a little bit, like when I, when I came here in 2003, and he's all, remember that baseball game we went to? And I'm like, a baseball game? I don't remember going to a baseball game. He's like, oh, yeah, I took you to a game. And we're trying to, like, paint this picture. I'm like, we went golfing, but we never went to a baseball game. And he's like, no, I took you to a baseball game. <laughs> and I'm like, we didn't go to a baseball game. <laughs> so we never agreed. We kind of, we, we looked at it mad and we walked. No, we didn't do that. <laughs> but we didn't agree on whether we went to a game or not. And so about a week later, I get a text from him and if you want to throw the picture up, he sent me this photo. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, this is the game we went to. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so apparently we went to a game, some game. So anyway, we did not go to a baseball game. Slightly photoshopped, just a little. So anyway, it really is great to be back. And as Candace mentioned, uh, we just feel like we just entered into another season as a house of just another uh, presence 2.0. It's kind of what we're calling it. It's just like, oh, God's doing something new. Not something he's already done, but something new. And it's pretty, pretty amazing. And so we're just praying that just us being here, just, just an impartation, just, just whatever we can do to give to you guys is really our heart while we're here. It's what we do when we love to travel, but just have a real affection for this house. And as Jeff said, the history goes a long way back to the wooden chairs. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, the title to this morning's message is The New Christian. The New Christian. If you don't like that one, I have another one in case you prefer options. It's Christian 2.0. So if, if, you like, if, you're a note take, if you're not note-taking person, then take note this morning. I want to encourage you. Um, the stuff that I want to I want to unload on you. That's a good thing. Unload. I don't know what it means here, but I want to just fire hose a few things to you because I feel like what the Lord's doing is is something unique and special. We're we're experiencing an increase of His presence. Uh, we're going deeper than we've ever gone before in our faith, deeper in our walk with the Lord, and, and encountering His presence. And I believe one of the automatic side effects, and it should be expected, to be honest with you, is how it changes the way that we do life from here on out. And it's not getting exclusive, it's actually moving outward even more so. You know, Jesus really is the premier example of, of how to be, uh, how to do life, and to navigate its endless mysteries. Jesus is, is the only example, and I love Paul, I love Peter, I love all the other men and women in Scripture, but at the end of the day, Jesus is the prime example to follow when it comes to how to be, how to do life, and how to navigate its endless mysteries. I want you to imagine with me this morning a, a movie scene. Someone's writing this script for this scene in a movie, and it involved a really nice dinner table, and there's going to be lots of great food. Maybe it's a beautiful dining area, exquisite chairs, exquisite furniture, a silverware place settings, and you know the whole, the whole world, just, just exquisite. And Imagine the, the person writing the script puts a Buddhist at the table. A man or woman, you can choose. I'll let you have that liberty. But a Buddhist person's at that table. And let's say next to the Buddhist is the Muslim, a devout Muslim. And let's say next to the Muslim is, an, is a, a Hindu. 
And, and just to thicken the plot, let's put an atheist and an agnostic at the same dinner table. And let, let, don't forget the Christian. Let's put a Christian at the table too. So imagine with me this scene that this person is writing, a, a, he's narrating, he's scripting this scene in the movie. And, and, and here's a question I have for you. Who do you think would be portrayed as the smartest at that table? Who would be portrayed as someone that has a ton of intelligence? Uh, who would be portrayed as someone that is compassionate or has a lot of empathy? Who would be portrayed at that table as someone that is incredibly thoughtful? Who would be portrayed at that table as someone that walks in power, like stuff happens, signs and wonders and miracles? I would like to propose to you, and again, it's not a competition of which religion is better. It's not even about that. But I want to point something out that should actually bother us. It should matter to us. I don't know if the Christian would be portrayed as the smartest. I don't know if the believer or a disciple of Jesus would be portrayed as the kindest. I don't know if they'd be portrayed as thoughtful, compassionate, empathetic. They may, they may win the category on power. They may go, oh, you know, that guy, he raises the dead, heals the sick, and, and so on and so forth. But let's, let's flip the script. Let's take the Christian out of the script, and let's put Jesus at the table. Who do you think would win the smartest person award at that table. Uh, I, I even think the Buddhists would be like, oh, this guy is so smart. He would stop trying to empty his mind and start filling his mind. I think the atheist would go, oh, wow, I'm an idiot. I think the agnostic would go, finally, I get to pick one side because someone had revealed to me truth. And I think the Muslim would go, I told you he was a prophet. I told you, no one believes me. You see, Jesus would be the most thoughtful, kindest, smartest, most powerful person at that table. And I don't think anybody would be talking. The only talking would be questioned and Jesus would be answering. So the fact that Jesus would actually check all the boxes, if you will, but yet a Christian wouldn't, should actually really bother us. It should actually matter to every person in this room that followed Jesus. Like, there's a problem with that. In fact, I would propose to you that we are known as the exact opposite as Protestants. And you know what Protestants means? It means we're really good at protesting. So you see, the world knows what we're against. They have no idea what we're for. So I want to challenge you this morning. This is more of a conversation than a sermon or a message. It's actually, it's very one way because I have a microphone. Because if we all had a microphone, we would get nowhere today. It would be an utter chaos and disaster. But I want you in your heart and in your mind, I want you to converse with me. I want you to engage with my question, engage in deep thought, and pay attention to what's stirring in your heart, and, and ask yourself deep questions this morning. My, there's so much I would love to just share, but obviously time is, we can't, stand, we can't sit here all day. So my prayer is that whatever gets invoked in you today, that gets awakened in you today, that the Holy Spirit would lead you ultimately to a new place what I would just say, a new Christian. I believe the Lord is taking us from 1.0 to 2.0. He's taking us into new realms. And I believe that we're on the cusp of that, not just Grace Center, but I believe the global church is stepping into another reality of what it means to follow Jesus. That's the day and age that we live in. So the fact that the, the intelligence and all these things are, are not what you would equate or connect to a believer should really, really bother us. Like, it should bother us to the same level that right and wrong bother us. You see, you and I are known for morals. 
whether we uphold them or not, it's everybody's choice, but we are known this is right and this is wrong. And we engage with everything in this world as that's a sin and that's not a sin. And we engage that's truth and that's a lie. That's right, that's wrong. That's black and that's white. And that is our lens. That is our paradigm of engaging with any human being, whether it's a fellow brother or sister or someone that never said yes to God. We, we look at the world as black and white. Now, let me propose to you, there's nothing wrong with that. The only problem is there's more colors. There's more color to the kingdom than just black and white. You see, a new Christian actually sees the whole story, not just part of the story. And one of the struggles we have in Western, Western church culture, evangelicalism, struggles we have is we only grasp part of the story, but we haven't recognized there's a much larger story at play. And for those of you that like to geek out on this stuff, go study fundamentalism that initiated in the late 1800s, and you'll learn quickly that something started in the late 1800s that actually minimized our impact and effectiveness because now we only talk about fall and redemption. We don't realize there's a bigger story than just about sin and grace. I know this will offend some of you because we're in the thick of the Bible belt here, so this is going to be a conversation you're going to have to have with the Holy Spirit. But I want to challenge you, a lot of the church is struggling with only looking at everything through a black and white lens. You can tell when you have a black and white lens is that when five opportunities come your way and your first thought is, what's the wrong one? Which one's the wrong one because I don't want to make the wrong decision? Everything in life is viewed as what's right and what's wrong. That's how you can tell you have a very small worldview or kingdom view on life. Now, let me be very clear, so some of you aren't concerned right now. Is there black and white reality? Are there truth and lies? Is there sin and no sin? Yes, yes, yes to all the above. But here's the challenge. We only live with black and white, not realizing there's a kingdom of color that has other dimensions that we need to interact with, that we need to understand. And I'm telling you, we're, it's amazing that we as humans and, and Jesus followers, we work so hard to flatten a multidimensional God. We work so hard. We love this multidimensional, uber-creative, imaginative reality. But when it hits us, like, can you make it A, B, C, please? Because I can't grasp this. And so we take these massive kingdom concepts, these truths that are blowing our mind, the mysteries of the kingdom, and say, you know what? I just need it in black and white. Just make it black and white for me. But yet we pray these prayers of revival, transformation, reformation. We pray these prayers of, God, I want something new. And he's like, you can't even let go of two colors. You, you don't even know how to let go of that or even bring that with you into a reality that is much deeper than just black and white. And this is the challenge in the church because we're so f- afraid of, of letting go of something that we're very familiar with. And I'm telling you, the future Christian, the new Christian, is going to engage with culture and society that's going to scare most of the church. But somebody's got to break the mold. Somebody actually has to adopt a new way of doing things. Now, this doesn't, become, this doesn't mean you become more liberal. You become more gray and everything. No, no, you actually become even more specific. But you actually are a deeper human being. You're not shallow. So ask yourself this question. Is my faith making me smarter or is it making me dumber? This is a happy message, by the way. We're going to, get, we're going to make some happy stuff in here, so don't, don't get too lost on me. Is my faith making me more compassionate, or is it making me more hard-hearted? 
You see, one of the challenges we have is that when you live with the black and white reality only, and you don't actually focus on growing your compassion or empathy, your likelihood to becoming judgmental, cynical, condemning, is very high. And the challenge for believers, especially in a, in a context like this, a number of you have been following the Lord all your life. You are well-versed in Scripture. You're, you've read every book. You've been to all the conferences. You know right and wrong while you're sleeping. And yet you've never grown your empathy. You've never grown in your compassion. And you become so cynical, judgmental, and you just love throwing stones to anyone that doesn't get the black and white reality. We have to confront this issue in the church. We have to confront ourselves with, am I actually getting smarter? Or am I just getting more narrow-minded and dumber? The road is narrow, but the mind was never meant to be narrow-minded. Is your faith making you more creative or is it making you uncreative? Is your faith allowing your imagination to expand to the vastness of the universe alone? Forget about the unseen realm. Or is your imagination shrinking down that someone else has to do all the creative work for you? Are you guys with me this morning? I want you to ask yourself some deep questions this morning. Where the Lord has taken us, the future Christian, it looks like whatever we've done up until this point will not work where we're going. We actually need an entirely new operating system. We want to unpack that. You see, we have to understand, how many would agree that when you, when, you, when you back up to the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned, the fall of man, sin entered the equation, and lots of time went by. Nobody really knows. That's one of my first questions in heaven. God, how, how long has everything been in existence? I just need to know that question. Because there's lots of argument on earth about how, long, how old everything is. But and nonetheless, from the fall of man to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a lot of time went by. So how many would agree that in that time span, however long it was, the interface with God and humanity, it wasn't working? And how many would agree that the religious institution in those eras, whatever you define as a religion, of trying to help humanity be holy was failing? It was chaotic. It it wasn't even working. Nothing was interfacing with God. Because sin was in the equation, a price had to be paid. So the only thing you could do between the fall of man to the resurrection of Jesus Christ would kick the can down the road. The punishment that would do on you for your sin, you just kick it down the road another year. So the priest would have instruction to offer sacrifice to postpone the punishment of sin. That was, that, it was just a fail-safe. It was a band-aid. It was a, it was a program that was written just to push off the crash later. How many, how many would agree that the interface wasn't working and that we were just kicking the can down the road? You see, but by the time Jesus came, he did something that profound. Now, in, let me switch gears here. In 1994, 1995, there was an Indian-born American man. I forgot to bring up my uh, USB cable. It's in my backpack if you don't mind grabbing it. In 1994, 1995, an Indian-born American man named Ajay Bhatt, he worked for a tech company, and he developed what's called the Universal Serial Bus, which is also called USB. Now, how many of you are old enough to remember, thank you, Candace, how many are old enough to remember? Oh, so nice. You coiled it up for me. So nice. How many remember the days of parallel ports on computers? Okay, you're going to start dating yourself, by the way. 
How many remember skizzy ports on computers? The hand get left. How many remember um, serial ports? Okay, how about PS2? Not PlayStation 2, but PS2 ports. How about FireWire? Which also was IEEE 1394. See, these were all ports in the computer world. Now, this was back in the 90s, and even before that, there was these big clunky ports. You had to screw them in, and you had to line up like 20 pins, and it was just, how many remember how cumbersome? I mean, in the moment, like, this is amazing. But looking back, you're like, I can't believe we actually lived that way. That was horrible. And, and how many remember you have a computer tower, and when you ran out of port, you had to buy a new card, open the thing up. I know some of you young people are like, you'd open your computer up? Yeah, it was normal. You just open it up, and you see the guts of it. You install the card, and you put the cover back on, and then you plug in your new printer, hoping it would work. And the computer would be like, I don't even know anything plugged in me right now. So you have to shut down the computer, restart it, hoping it would recognize. And oftentimes, it never worked. So you had to go buy and find a floppy disk, order it in the mail. They send you a floppy disk with the right drive. Some of you are losing me right now, but you get my point. But humanity was like, this is awesome. This is working. My, eventually, it works. And Ajay thought, this is so dumb. that There needs to be one port to rule them all. And so in 1994, 1995, he, uh, 93, somewhere in there, he was actually working in a tech company. He went to his oversight and said, I believe that we can develop one port to rule them all. And the guy said, I don't believe you. I'm not funding the idea. So he moved laterally in the same company, found a new director and said, I believe there's one port to rule them all. I want to develop it. And the guy said, I don't believe you, but prove me wrong. And he funded the idea. This guy spent, Ajay, he spent a year and a half traveling the tech industry, the tech world, Apple, IBM, Microsoft, all the major companies, Dell, and some smaller companies as well. And he said the hardest thing was not actually creating the USB port. The hardest thing was convincing everyone it was needed. You see, most of humanity think it works. This is great. It's fine. It's a little bit of work, but it's okay. And Ajay said, no, there's a much better way to do things. So when Jesus showed up on earth, he thought, I'm going to fix this interface because nothing's working. It's just postponing. It's cumbersome. The amount of data, the connection was weak. It was poor. It was way too much work. And Jesus said, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to go to the grave and I'm going to be resurrected and then I'm going to ascend to the Father. And essentially what Jesus did, he fixed the interface between humanity and God. He became, if you'll allow me, the USB between humanity and God. He fixed it. It became seamless. It was a simple plug and play. That's why when you turn your heart to the Lord, it's not this, hold on, i got to plug this thing in. No, it's instant. Just like a USB port. It recognizes it. It knows the connection. Data goes back and forth instantly. It's not some, we have to reboot every None of that happens now. So Jesus became the USB port, the USB connector to God. But it doesn't end there. It actually goes even deeper than that. And Jesus began to teach. If you look at his life, he began to teach how to actually interface with humanity. And that's the challenge we have is because you see the world, we tend to see the world only in black and white. We forget the world is multidimensional. The world got a lot of colors and some of them are pretty crazy. There's a lot of interesting ideas and thoughts out there. And so what we tend to do is we try to superimpose the black and white on every situation, and it's not that simple. Well, Jesus was, yeah, I know, but did you know that Jesus was invited to all the parties and we're not? Yeah, did you notice that everybody in society wanted to be with him? 
not just the Christian elite. Actually, the group that didn't like him the most were the Christian elite. The people that were actually living in sin and Jesus was preaching against sin. The people that were actually living in sin said, Jesus, come over to my house. Who's inviting you to their house when they know that you're black and white? I know there's exceptions to this. I'm speaking generally right now. But I believe the Lord has taken us into a new era that we're going to learn how to be a USB port to humanity. Isn't it amazing that Jesus in one moment could be in a temple? I started at 12 years old, but in his adult years, in 30 to 33 years old, he's in the temple teaching the scholars about the truths of Scripture. And he's pulling revelation from another world. And he's confounding the wisest of the wisest. Then he leaves the temple and he feeds 5,000 people that are hungry. And then he showed up on a boat and then he decides to walk on water. And then he calms storms. And then he, he does some stuff with Nicodemus. He stands up all night and answers some deep theological questions, some philosophical existential questions. And then Jesus comes over here and he performed this miracle. What's my point? Jesus was touching everything from the left to the right and everything from upper class to the lower class. He was interfacing with all of humanity. And for some reason in the church, we have limited ourselves to only people that get us. We love talking about being ambassadors and citizens of heaven, but we're still stuck on serial ports hoping it fixes the problem that is way more complex than a serial port can fix. So we have to ask some deep questions this morning. Is your faith making you smarter? Is it making you more compassionate? Is it making you kinder? Are you actually, are you actually growing in your power and signs and wonders? Because if not, then I would challenge you, what faith are you adhering to? Now let me ask you this question. Is it the problem of faith or is it the understanding and the assimilation of our faith? So Jesus came to establish a new interface. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to live in a world where you got in so much trouble for not washing your hands right. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to live in a world where a man that was born blind gets healed and everybody's trying to figure out whose son it is and if he was actually really blind, although they walked by him every day and he was a legitimate blind man. And while they're arguing and discussing and they finally find the parent and they say, is this your son? Well, by that point, there's a mob forming. There's quite a bit of anxiety in the atmosphere. And the parents are like, he's an adult, you ask him. Because they knew if they gave the wrong answer, they would be completely excommunicated from the religious system. They finally find the man and they said, were you really blind? You weren't blind. And they begin to question the validity of his blindness when he just now healed. And the discussion ends with this, you're a fraud. And he's like, I don't care, I can see, so see you later. (laughs) You see, Jesus knows what it's like to live in a world where there's lots of confusion. Where he knows what it's like to function in a society that attacks itself. So the idea that Jesus doesn't know what it's like to live in today's age, it's just naive for us. So how do we actually do this? Study the gospel through intelligence, through kindness, thoughtfulness, power, begin to read the scriptures through that lens and you will realize how brilliant Jesus was. Who has the ability to say one line and an entire religious system collapses in that moment? Who has the ability to do one simple act and the religious system convulses? Jesus did. 
So that's called the intelligence of Jesus. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, we have the mind of Christ. Do you understand that we are promised the mind of Christ? Think about that for a moment. The heart, yes, our heart of stone is replaced with the heart of flesh. I'm talking about the mind of Christ. Think about the mind of Jesus. Like we're promised the same mind to think like him, function like him, see everything the way he sees. And then you get deeper into Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about we are seated in heavenly places, which is mind-blowing. It's not a someday statement. It is a right now you and I have access to sit in heaven so we are living in the eternal realm and yet we're present in this realm. Most of us don't realize that. We're just glad we're alive. We're just glad we got redeemed. We don't realize there's creation at the beginning of the story and then there's restoration of all things at the end of the story. Most of us are still focused on fallen redemption. I want to challenge you, the kingdom is bigger than just repentance. The kingdom is bigger than just saying yes to Jesus as your Lord, for him to be your Lord and Savior. Much bigger than that. Not to diminish that, not to shrink that, that actually accentuated even more when you really look at the whole picture. You see, a new Christian thinks about revival, transformation, and reformation. We're always so focused on revival that we forget that revival leads to something. What did it lead to? It leads to transformation. It leads to the fact that this encounter, this experience with God actually transformed me from the inside out. So as I'm being transformed, all of a sudden look at the world around me. I said, oh, I need to bring reformation to my entire world, whether it's your home, your business, your city, your nation, whatever realm of influence that the Lord trusts you with. Then you move into, oh, I don't just have experienced God. I don't just get transformed by God. I actually move into reformation. And I actually believe the Lord is actually taking us into reformation right now. Because there's been mass revival. There's been tons of transformation. And now the Lord's taking us into reformation. Now, do you leave revival? Do you leave transformation? No, that all comes with you. So the new Christian actually begins to realize, I'm called to reform the world. around. I'm not called to Christianize it. I'm called to reform it. There's a difference between seeing the kingdom come than Christianizing. I'll let that one float for a while. You go pursue God on that one. There's a vast difference in church history of taught it. We know how to Christianize, and that didn't seem to work. Church history is riddled with the worst stories, good intentions, but horrible outcomes. So let's not get caught up in the Christianizing. Let's get caught up in what does it look like for the kingdom to actually come. The only way to do it is to be seated in heavenly places. So we think Christians know how to live in secular society but not become secular. You see, the new Christian knows how to function in a world of darkness and bring hope. You see, a new Christian knows how to live in a world where death is frequent but they bring life and light everywhere they go. They recognize their responsibility in society. They're able to interface. So a new Christian is able to go to a board meeting that's making a $5 billion decision and go, oh, I know what heaven wants to do here. And they grab their USB cable. They plug in and say, I know exactly what's supposed to happen here. And they help make this amazing, intelligent decision on what to do with $5 billion. They unplug from that meeting and they leave the office building. They go down the street and there's a man down the street with one leg. They go, oh, I know what the kingdom does here. And they plug into this situation and they see God grow a leg. Then they unplug and then they go home and they're raising teenagers. And they're like, God, help me raise my kids. I am losing my mind. I can make $5 billion decision. I can see legs grow. 
But my God, I don't know how to parent a teenager. You see a new Christian go, oh, I know what God wants to do here, and plugs in on how to parent. You see, a new Christian is able to interface in all areas of life and see the kingdom come. It's not meant to be impossible. It's challenging, but it's not meant to be impossible. In fact, this is why Jesus died on the cross, not just to redeem your soul, but to restore all things like he intended in the very beginning. So any complex situation you have in life, instead of running from it, go, okay, I'm going to try to plug this in and see what happens. And it all starts to be seated in heavenly places, It's all starting with the mind of Christ. In Ephesians chapter three, verse 10, it's one of my personal favorite verses. It said, to the intent, which means what? God intended it. This is what he wants. He designed it this way. That the manifold wisdom of God would be made known by the church to all principalities, powers, and heavenly places. Now, to the intent, so God wants it to happen. The manifold wisdom, let's talk about those two words. The word manifold actually means multidimensional, it means multifaceted and multicolored. It actually is linked to Joseph's coat of many colors in the Old Testament. The idea, my description would be, it's like a hologram. Every time you turn it, you see something new. It actually, you know the verse in Revelation where talked about the angels are surrounding the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. And the whole picture, they're bowing their head because they've just seen a nature of God. And when they look at God again, he just revealed another part of his nature. He's never duplicated himself once. And he's been doing it since he created angels. I remember the kid, I'm a PK, so I've been in church, pastor's kid. I've been in church my whole life. I remember hearing that story and I thought, what a boring job. To spend all of eternity just saying, holy, holy is the Lord. I thought, that's the last job I want on earth. Now that I've grown up a little bit, I'm like, oh, that's the only job I want. Why? Because they're seeing God reveal another part of himself that no one's ever seen before. OMG did not start in our phone era. OMG started there. They're like, OMG. And they've been doing it ever since. They've been saying, oh, my God for as long as they've been created. So that's what manifold means. It's this multidimensional, never-ending reality of who God is. He's always revealing a new part of his nature. The word wisdom in this passage actually means the intelligence of God. We're being made known by the church. Now, in this passage, the word church doesn't mean the institution or the organization of church. It actually means the believer. Very personal. So each person in this room, you have a privilege, responsibility to actually reveal the genius of God. And yet we're like just black and white. I just want this and that. We don't realize that we have an opportunity to experience the genius of God and reveal the genius of God. And what's even more fascinating about that passage to me, it doesn't say for the sake of humanity. That's going to happen naturally. Why? Because you do life with people. They're going to see the genius of God on your life. It actually says to all principalities and powers in the heavenly places that in the ages to come, they might see the exceeding riches of his grace. What's the point? That God wants to reveal to everything in existence in the seen realm and the unseen realm that his idea of giving humanity the kingdom narrative of the creation, of the fall, of redemption, and the restoration of all things, that that idea is a good idea. And when you and I step into that reality that we are to reveal the genius of God, guess what? All of the heavens go, dang. <laughs> you see, Jesus was incredibly intelligent. There's one moment that's one of my favorite moments. You remember that moment where 
the disciples, I'm sorry, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they bring in a woman that just committed adultery. He was preaching in the church early in the morning. So much like this, in a temple, he's teaching the law, and Jesus is doing his brilliance. And they bring in this woman in the middle of the service. They put her, put her at her, his feet, and there's a high chance she was barely clothed, a very high chance she was naked. Remember, she was caught in the act of adultery, not post-act, in the act, which makes me go, hey, what were you guys doing there? <laughs> Always wondered that, like, hey, Pharisees, um, what? Anyway, you get my point. And then I'm like, where's the guy? Where, where's the guy in the story? Because according to the law, man and the woman will be stoned. So here Jesus is confronted with a woman that committed a sin that is punishable by being stoned to death. It's in the Bible. It's in the law. It's in the Levitical law. So the religious leaders say, Jesus, we caught her in the act of adultery. The, the law says to stone her. So Jesus is now in a corner, a theological corner, and the corner is this. If I don't stone her, I've just, I've just condoned the sin. I said, it's okay. Don't worry about it. But then if I agree with them, then I actually am bolstering up a religious institution that had lost its soul. That had lost its empathy, had lost all compassion. So he's stuck with, I've got, which of the lesser of two evils do I go with? This is where the intelligence of Jesus comes in. He goes, I know what I'll do. I'll just go to the ground and start drawing in the sand. It's one of the most simplest acts. He simply goes to the ground and he begins to draw on the sand. Now, what's fascinating to me is you read the very next verse and it says they continue to pester him, which means a period of time is going by while he's drawing in the sand. They're above him saying, Jesus, what should we do? Can we stone her or not? And he's just biding his time. What is he doing? He is actually disrupting a momentum of condemnation and judgment and the spirit of murder that wants to kill this woman. And the only thing he knew to do, which was the intelligence of Jesus, is a simple act of kneeling will disrupt, will shock an entire system. Because how many have ever experienced a momentum of emotion that you don't act out of the right place? So he knew that they were acting out of a cultural norm and that would we just kill people that commit sins, black and white reality. And Jesus said, I need them to stop for a moment because I'm about to reveal their conscience. So by kneeling, he does that. And then he stands up and he says this brilliant question. He goes, okay, here's the situation. If you've never sinned, go ahead and stone her. And then he goes back down to the ground. And starting, if you know what the verse says, starting with the oldest to the youngest, they all left. Have you ever wondered why? You see, I have a theory on, on every decade of life. I want to share with you my wisdom on this. You see, I believe in your 20s, you know everything. You're the master. I mean, you've figured life out. In fact, every 20-year-old looked at people older than them, and it's confused on why they're confused. They're confused. I'm like, don't you have life sorted out? I mean, I do. I'm 21 and I've got my whole life sorted. I know exactly. I've got my plan. I've got my vision, my goal. I, I've, I've conquered life at the mere age of 21. And everybody older is like, oh, you're so cute. <laughs> and it's amazing in your 20s, you are the master of your life. You are happening to life. But something amazing happens when you enter your 30s. Life happens to you. So you thought you were all that in your 20s and your 30s, you realize you're nothing. And I tell every 30-year-old, the quicker you can embrace this truth that you know nothing, it'll make your 30s be so much better. Just, just trust me on this. So in your 20s, you get all fancy, dressed up, 
metaphorically, in your 30s, you get stripped back down to butt naked. And you're like, oh my gosh, why am I even alive? I don't even know if I, I don't even know why I'm existing on this planet. I can't, I am out of, my life is out of control. And then that amazing thing happened when you step into your 40s, you're like, actually, I think I know who I really am. You thought you knew who you were in your 20s. And then you're in your 40s, you become really humble. You're like, yeah, I don't really know what I'm doing. I just want to make it to heaven. That's kind of what I'm doing right now. I just want to do a good job and get there. Anybody relate to me on that? And you're like, and I'm okay with that. I'm good at that. You know, if I don't, you know, if I don't end up running this company or changing, I'm, I'm okay. I just want to make it. And that reality grows because you realize you're pretty screwed up. You're, you've got some issues that you didn't think you had. And then in your 50s, you enter this like joy season. And you're like, man, my life, I just love my life. I don't really know much what I'm doing, but I'm just, I know I'm going to go to heaven. I, my grandkids are showing up. I'm just a rich man or a rich woman, just happy. And then this amazing thing happens in your 60s. This thought comes in and you go, you know what? I actually do not care what people think of me anymore. <laughs> Everybody older than 60 is like, oh yeah, totally. And this is why it's amazing to see six-year-olds and social media interact. <laughs> I'm convinced six-year-olds every morning wake up, they go, hmm, how can I make as many people mad as possible? <laughs> what can I repost uh, what comment can I make to see how many people get all ruffled up? Oh, I'm going to do that. And I, Candace and I work with my dad closely, Chris Valentin, Danny Silk, and all of them, I know every day they're like, ooh, I can't wait to post something today. And they just love making these comments and it just fires everybody up. And Chris always goes, yeah, people left 900 comments on my post this morning. He, he just loves that, like, he just... And that's six-year-olds. You don't care anymore. You're like, I don't care. And that's why their clothing style seems to change, too. They're like, I don't even care what I look like. Whatever's comfortable, that's all I'm going to wear. How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You stop trying. You're just like, eh, I don't care. Then in your 70s, you kind of enter like 50s all over again. You're like, man, I, my great-grandkids are coming around. I'm just a rich man, a rich woman. And you realize, man... Life, you know what? I'm just going to make it. That's all I'm going to do. I realize I've got lots of issues, but I'm thankful. Then you hit your 80s, same thing. And then your 90s. Our grandparents are like in their 90s right now. And one of them, two of them have passed away. And they're all going, how many more birthdays am I going to have? I have I, I've lived a long life. That's why the oldest guy left first. Because they realized, ah, I have nothing to do other than this woman. I have my own issues. The 80-year-olds are like, yep, we're following that guy. And pretty soon, 60, 50, 40. And then I'm convinced in that story, there was a 21-year-old graduate of some theological seminary that majored in some complex theology, his thesis, the whole deal. And he's standing there with his stones thinking, I can throw stones. Could I, am, I am qualified to throw stones. And then Johnny... His mom is in the corner saying, Johnny, remember what I caught you doing last week? Mom, shut up. And then he runs off. <laughs> you see, what was Jesus doing? He's confronting a religious system that had lost its soul. Simply by kneeling and asking one question. And then Jesus finally looks up and he goes, where have all your accusers gone? And the woman said, they've all gone. They've all left. And Jesus, the only person that had the right to kill her condemn her and judge her. The most purest man ever, spotless, blameless, said, I don't condemn you either. 
and then he deals with the sin. See, most of us are trying to deal with people's sin and forgot about empathy, compassion. So what's my point? Jesus always had black and white, but he has a lot of other colors at play that he's working with. I'm telling you, I believe the church is going to step into a level of intelligence that's reminiscent of the genius of God. And we're going to understand how to interact and interface with society like never before. It's already been happening, in my opinion, for about 10 years. It's happening on such a scale now that more people are realizing, oh, I can actually go into society and not become it. I can actually go into dark places but not become dark. I can actually interact with the hot topics of politics today and not become it. This is the era that we're stepping into, but the hardest part is this. No one likes to let go of 1.0. Why? Because it works. Some of you in this room right now, your phone this morning reminded you, would you like to update your phone? A new update's out on your phone. You're like, nope, no update. I like my phone the way it is right now. Why? Because it works. All the bugs, all the glitches have been worked out. You finally figured out how to do all these functions and, and you're just loving it. But the problem is there are other features that are available that will help you be more successful in life. But you're like, nope, I like my 1.0. We always pray for 2.0, but we never let go of 1.0. <laughs> like, nope, I like it. Except there's a couple people in here. You have the automatic update feature on your phone. You click, you slide that feature and your phone updates. And you're the one that, you're what society called early adopters. You're the reason why human race actually moves forward. So you're welcome, everyone, for the early adopters in this room. I had a unique experience recently. Um, Tesla came out with a Cybertruck. Anybody? Enough? Two of you. Okay. In California, it's a big deal. But Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla Electric Cars, came out with a Cybertruck. And I want to go toward the electric, but I'm an, I'm an F-150 guy, so I love my truck. But I'm like... If there's an electric, electric option of this, then I'm definitely moving in that direction for obvious reasons. So he's announcing his Cybertruck. And so I remember watching the live stream. And it, he pull, if you haven't seen it, pull out your phones right now and Google Cybertruck. Seriously, I'm, I'm letting you. <laughs> Open your phones right now. And I'm watching this, and he pulled the truck out on the stage. And I'm like, is this a joke? <laughs> the truck looked like a mixture of a DeLorean and Blade Runner. It's, hor- it's hideous. And I remember going, are you kidding me? This is the ugliest truck I've ever seen. And I actually thought there was going to be a cover he's going to pull off and go, never mind, I'm kidding, here's the real truck. No, that didn't happen. I'm like, oh, he missed it. He totally, I mean, Elon's brilliant, but he missed it on this one. And people in the crowd are like, they didn't know what to do with this thing. And then, he's, then he wanted to prove how strong the glass was. And he did a demonstration. He had normal car glass. He dropped the steel ball and the glass cracks. It was shattered. And then he grabbed the Tesla glass and he dropped the steel ball from like 12 feet and it just bounced. It doesn't break. He's all, my glass is stronger than all the other glass. And then he said, would you like to see a demonstration on the truck? And the crowd's like, yeah. So he's all right. So one of his guys comes out with the steel ball and chucks the ball at the window on the truck. Shatters. <laughs> and I'm like, is this the joke? Oh my gosh, it's so embarrassed. And Elon's a really bad presenter. Like, he, he's horrible. I'm used to Steve Jobs, like perfection. And Elon's like, uh, what am I supposed to talk about? Oh yeah, uh, it was just, I'm like, this is so embarrassing. But I couldn't stop watching. And, and then the window breaks and he's like, he says some choice words, which I won't repeat. And then he said, try the other window. So the guy picked up the steel ball, chucked it, 
So the rest of the presentation, you see Elon's face and behind him are two shattered windows. And I thought, oh, he missed it. And I'm like, this is the ugliest talk. I'm definitely not getting one. So for the next two days, though, I read every article I could find. I'm watching reviews. And this amazing what happened. This truck went from an embarrassment hideous to I've got to have one of these trucks. So I pre-ordered one. So I'm like, oh, yeah. My wife was like, are you serious? Like, oh, it, it's a no-brainer. You have to, it's so ugly, it's cool. How many know that line? There was that line where it's so hideous, but then it kind of becomes cool somehow. I'm always intrigued, like, how does something move? Anyway, that's another discussion. You see, there are people that are early adopters that actually push the human race forward. Some of you might not like letting go of 1.0, but some of you need to embrace 2.0 so the rest of the church moves forward. You see, if you and I are not moving forward collectively, the past will always become our destination. We'll just reproduce what we've already experienced, put something light, new light on a new branding, new color, and say, look what's new. No, it's not new. It's just regurgitated. It's amazing how we pray for something new. The problem is something new you've never seen before, which means you have no framework, no grid to put it in. So you're like, oh, I don't understand that, and we toss it. But there are people in this room that are called to be early adopters and embrace 2.0. You, you, now you can tell when you've moved to 2.0 is the features and the function that work in 2.0 no, no longer work in 1.0. How many have you ever read a magazine, and you're looking at a photo, and you're like, oh, I need to see, and you try to zoom... How many have ever done that before? Are you on a screen of a laptop? You're like, oh, it's not an iPad. What's my point? The function that is new in this, in this system, it no longer works in an old system. And that's what the Lord's doing. He's taking the church into a new world of new features, new functions, new actions, and new outcomes. And you'll recognize that because you realize, oh, it doesn't work there anymore. And I believe we're in a 1.0 to 2.0 moment. Now, some of you might need the 1.1, the small update. And that's fine. They're devail- they're, those are always available. But I do believe wholeheartedly. I speak, feel like I'm speaking prophetically now. We are moving to 2.0. We've got to understand that the only time that we often like to change is when we realize there's another better option. Just like the USB port. Oh, we're fine with parallel, skizzy. They all work. No, no, no. There's something better. And let's go get it. So we need a new language for a new world. Do you know the word download? Give me a couple of minutes and I'm going to wrap it up. You know the word download wasn't ever, was never invented until 1977? Because the idea of something coming from one device to another device, there was no language for it. And so when they began to do that in the, in the 70s with computers, someone said, well, what is this action? What do we call this? A transfer? And somebody came up with the word download. So now that the pinch to Zoom That phrase had never been used before 2007. What's my point? Sometimes you need a new language for a new reality. And anytime there's an established culture, anytime there's a culture that's fairly established, it's got very strong foundation, it's got good core values, it always had buzzwords or phrases that help to steer and guide that culture. The challenge with that, those buzzwords and phrases, they have a lifespan. And that's the thing that's really hard for us. Like, no, it doesn't. It it lasts forever. No, the principle lasts forever, but the phrase doesn't. It runs its life. And this is usually, this is not every case, but you can usually tell when a phrase or a buzzword had ran its course when it's no longer empowering but becomes constricting and is used against you. So I'll give you one of the ones in our environment, culture of honor. 
culture of honor is one of the biggest phrases. Danny Silk is the one that coined it in our culture. He took the activity of how we interact and how we do life, and he said, oh, this is called the culture of honor. He wrote a book, and Danny's world famous for that simple phrase, and Bethel is known as, oh, that's the culture of honor. That's the culture of honor. The challenge now, the principle is the same. The truth never dies, but the phrase is now like, well, that's not the culture of honor. That's not, we're talking about what it's not more than what it is. That's when you know, okay, we need a new language for where we're going. We need a new language for a new world. We need words like download, pinch to zoom. We need new language. And the challenge that we have as Christians, we don't understand the difference between Bible language and biblical language. There's language that is very cultural, not the, not the truth. This is where I get on sketchy ground, so I need you to listen really closely. I'm not talking about changing the truth. I'm talking about the words that are used to describe the truth. This is a simple example, and I'll end with this in just a moment. A friend of mine pastored a very influential church in SoCal, in L.A., and I was with him a few months ago, and he said, Eric, you know that verse in the Bible that says, look out on the field, the harvest is ripe. We need to send laborers out there. He said, that makes no sense to L.A. You say that in L.A., and people are like, what's a field? Because <laughs> they look out, they don't see field. They obviously see something very different. So sometimes the principles and truths always remain the same, but the description of the action has to evolve over time. And I believe the Lord is actually going to be given new language for how to interface and interact with society. Okay, I'm done. Why don't you stand? I want to pray for you. Another trait of a new Christian, they, are, they know they are active, and an integral part of the plan to help restore all things. They see the macro story as well as the micro story. They have a perspective that understands the past, embraces the present, which leads them to the future. And so, Father, I pray for this church. I pray for Grace Center. We thank you for the deep, rich history and heritage in this environment. I thank you for, for how this church has embodied a piece of you that needs to be revealed. And I pray in this moment that every person, doesn't matter if we're young or we're older and wiser, no matter how long we've been following you, that we, this would be a church that would say yes to 2.0. And we'd be willing to let go of 1.0, something that's worked, it's successful. There's really no other need to change other than the fact that you actually are doing something new. So I pray for each and every person in this room. Teach us how Jesus actually can make us smarter, more intelligent more thoughtful, and to walk in more power. And that we wouldn't reduce Jesus down to just one or the ones that we like, but we'd actually become multifaceted, multidimensional, and we're able to interface everything from the left to the right, from upper class to lower class, and all the in-between, that we will be a people that know how to interface with culture and society before previous to any generation has been able to. Now put your hand on the person next to you. Grab a hand or shoulder, whatever you prefer. I want you to repeat after me. Say, Jesus. Jesus. Say it with passion. Jesus. Jesus. Mess them up. Mess them up. Father, I ask that you would blow our boxes. Change our paradigms. Confront us. And Father, we ask that we would not just experience revival, but we'd be transformed from the inside out, which would lead us to reformation. And I bless this house. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you guys. Bless you so much.